Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Today we have an unbelievable episode for you and I'm so excited to share it with you. But before we get going, I just wanted to mention to you about my book, Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas and Make Giant Piles of Money. Now I wrote this book almost four years ago and it became a number one bestseller. And just recently, four years on, it has become a number one bestseller again. So there are a lot of people out there who are getting a lot of value from this book. And I get comments literally every day how this book has changed their lives. So I'm really excited to have done this. And I want you, if you haven't already, to go out there and pick up a copy. It is completely evergreen. The knowledge and the things that I share in it are timeless. Okay, there might be one or two programs that have changed with immigration, but the concept, the ideas, the mentality of being an expat and how all of these pieces fit together for the offshore markets, it is still applicable. So if you go to Amazon and search my name, Mikkel Thorpe, or Expat Secrets, it should come up at the very, very first. Otherwise, if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you should see some links on my website that will redirect you to Amazon in your region to pick up the book. So Expat Secrets, if you haven't had a chance to read it, then I suggest you do now. Support the show. All the money goes back into the podcast to produce this content for you. So I appreciate the support. And if you want to be a really cool human being, do me a favor and leave a review for the book. I really appreciate it. It really helps new authors like me to sustain and pay for all of this type of stuff. So your support is definitely welcome. That's it. Enjoy today's episode. I hope you get a ton out of it, and I will talk to you soon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest helps investors purchase risk-mitigated, pre-developed land in high-growth areas. He then assists them with their selling of the parcels to developers who consolidate that land into larger parcels to build housing, shopping centers, solar farms, etc., etc., He is on a mission to help as many people as he can build generational and legacy wealth by investing in land. This kind of investment is no longer reserved for the rich. Average investors can buy land and with patience, turn it into multiple returns. Please welcome to the show, Brad Warren. Brad, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Very nice to see you and hi, everybody. 
Well, we're very happy to have you here. So Brad, why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through how did you get into land banking? We'll get into what land banking is in a moment, but I'm kind of interested about your backstory and how you decided that this is what you wanted to do for a career. My former career was a business coach. And I did that for a little over 40 years. And then before I tell how I got into being a land banker, let me tell you just a little bit about how I started investing because that's uh, germane to the, the full story. So I do a quarterly net worth statement for my wife and I. Been doing it for 30 years since we got married. And on December 31st, 2011, I realized I couldn't retire. My wife could retire. Together we could retire, but me by myself with just my money, I couldn't. And so I called my land banker. Her name is Marcella Silva. And I said, Marcella, come to our house in January, do the presentation for my wife and I, and I'm very interested in, in finding out more about land banking. She comes over, she presents, my wife gets up at the end and says, no, thank you. It sounds like speculation. I work for Oracle, I get a 401k match. I'm cool, I'll see you later. Walks out of the room. I turned to Marcella, I said, get me a property because this is the only way I'm gonna make enough money in the next few years to be able to retire. So two months later, I got my first property, a year later, a second, a year later, a third, and a year later, my wife comes with me to hear Marcella at a public presentation at a hotel. The whole way in the car, she's going, no, I'm not going to buy land. I just want to learn more, but I am not going to buy land. Well, you can imagine what happens. We get there. She hears Marcella present. She turns to me and she goes, oh my gosh, I get it. I understand. And she bought two properties right there at the hotel. So that was number four and five. Uh, since then, we've bought six more. So we actually own 11. So people want to know, well, did you put your own money into this? The answer is yes. Along the way, I became a finder. Finder is what we call a referral partner. And I sent, uh, it might be millions of dollars worth of business to Marcella uh, and got referral fees. And this is great. I'm, I've made over 55,000 US in referral fees, which was enough for me to actually buy two properties basically for free. So I'm going on my merry way as a finder. And on January 31st of 2018, I come home from a real estate meeting. I'm still a coach at that point. And my wife has a very funny look on her face. She's sitting at the, at the dinner table. And I think I know what happened, but I sit down and I say, what happened? And she goes, I got dismissed from Oracle, not fired. Oh, wow. You get fired, you can collect unemployment. Yep. You get laid off, you can get unemployment. You get dismissed. You can't get unemployment. So I said, okay, you're going to find another job. She goes, no, I'm 60 some odd years old. I'm retiring. I said, okay, we'll live on my coaching salary. Everything's cool. But that night we were going out with uh, Rick. Rick is Marcella's husband, Rick and Marcella for dinner, which we'd scheduled two weeks earlier. We get there, we tell them our story, expecting a lot of sympathy. And they start laughing at us. I said, well, my wife just lost a six figure job on a, you know, a, a matching 401k vacation pay. Uh, health benefits. And you guys are laughing. They said, Brad, you're not going to believe this. Our company has lifted the moratorium on hiring new real estate agents. We know you got your real estate license two months ago. And that's another whole story I won't go into now. And they said, we want you to move your license and come work with us. And two and a half hours later, I pay for dinner. We're driving home. I haven't said yes. My wife looks at me and says, I don't understand. This is an incredible opportunity. What's up? I said, sweetie, they're asking me to leave a 40-year career as a business coach. It's all I've ever done my entire adult life. And this is a direct quote. She leans over in the car, gets very close to my, my ear, and she goes, Brad, you'd be an idiot not to make this career change, and I did not marry an idiot. 
And I laughed so hard, Mikhail, I couldn't stay. I was, I was hysterical. I almost peed my pants. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I got home, went to bed, got up in the morning, February 1st, called Marcella, said, I'm in. When my coaching clients are done, I won't take on new ones and teach me how to be a landmaker. And so that's February 9th of 2018. I became a full-time land banker. That's what I do now. And I help people build generational wealth. Amazing. That is truly amazing. That's also really interesting about your wife having such trepidation and hesitation at the very beginning and then being the one to actually encourage you and push you when she had taken the time to really, really understand and, and dig into it. So I guess this is probably an opportune time. Brad, like, what is land banking? I'm glad you asked. So in a, in a <laughs> That nutshell, sounds really cliche. We're not doing a pitch here, but I mean, <laughs> this is not something that I know about. I, and, and a little side note for everybody. I got connected with Brad a few weeks ago and heard the term land banking for the very first time. The absolute very first time. So I'm setting this up a little bit because I've gone on and done my own private research, but in... 20 years of investing myself, I had never heard this term before. So I think this is a legitimate question. Brad, what is land banking? And you're not the only one that asks. In fact, I got a, a little lapel badge and it says Brad Warren, land banker. And when I, when pre-COVID, when there were chamber of commerce meetings and mixers and I would wear it and I would reach forward to shake someone's hand and introduce them and they, and they look at it and they go, land banker, what's that? 100% of the time which of course allowed me to say, well, land banking is the process of buying what we call pre-developed land strategically placed in the path of growth, holding and exiting by selling to the developer to make generational wealth. And then I would stop and that would lead to the next question. Well, tell me more or well, where do you do it? Or where? And so that one little badge has made me tens of thousands of dollars. In fact, I have three different colors so that they match different shirts that I wear. So that, that is in a nutshell, I mean, I hope, you know, we'll dig in a little bit more, but basically we do a lot of research, our company, when I say we, I'm going to just mean our company. We do a lot of research to mitigate the risk as much as possible. Cause yeah, people have heard of land speculation. That's where you buy a plot of land. You hope that somebody wants to buy it from you later and put something on it. In our business, there's no hoping. We know because of the area that we, we've been in this one area for over 20 years, we know that the developers are going to get there eventually. So you have to be patient. Land banking is a patient investor's way of making money and the returns are very, very generous. So that's basically it. We find the land and then we sell it to investors. They wait and they exit by selling to the developer. So what I'm hearing you say is it's very purposeful. You, there's no buying and hoping. There's no buying and praying. It's You're very purposeful about what you do and where you are buying. And you have a real game plan, for lack of a better term, in place before you purchase anything. Is that right? That is 100% correct. Okay, wonderful. So I understand that you and your company work specifically in Southern California. However, we're going to try to tailor today's conversation to the world, we're going to try to make things as international. Because in our conversations before we push record, Brad, it sounded to me like a lot of the concepts that you teach and that you work in and that you promote actually can be transferred to anywhere in the world. And I know that you are an international speaker and you've traveled all over the world and we were chit-chatting about travel and things like that as well. But a lot of these concepts can actually be taken abroad as well. So 
I think it's going to be a really fun conversation today. So I guess let's start with the uh, the sweet stuff, the the attractive piece. When you say you can make generational wealth, when you say that you can get really substantial returns, what are we talking about here? What what is to be expected, or what is the goal? So our investment range is twenty five thousand to two million. So on the lower end, it's very affordable to people, and we. We can never use the G word, guarantee. We cannot guarantee, just like somebody with a stock, you know, can't promise, oh, buy it at $10, we guarantee it'll go to 200. Of course, we cannot do that. But generally speaking, over the 41-year history of the company, and specifically 25 years or so in this one area, we see three to seven X return, three to seven times return. So your 25,000 can become anywhere from, 75 to 175,000. You put in 100,000, it could go to three to 700,000, generally speaking. Sometimes more, sometimes, I don't know of anybody that's gotten less than three times, except for one person. He bought a property, he sold it three months later for a 62% return. And we, we are, we said, don't sell, it's gone up that much in three months, you gotta wait. He said, you don't understand. I want to buy a bigger piece of land. So he flipped it. We don't recommend that, but he flipped it right away, took that extra money and then bought a bigger property. And that one he's now waiting on. So, okay, fine. But other than that one example that I I have never heard Marcella share with me any story, she's been doing this over 11 years, I believe. We have never heard of anybody selling for less than three times. And certainly I know people that are getting more than seven times. The three to a 700% increase in value, where the stock market on a good year will do 10% a year. Wow. So keep in mind though, yeah. it's also, you must be very patient. Land banking is not yeah, like- but That was going to be my next question. Okay, okay so I understand that that is the entire lifetime of the investment. We're not talking an annualized return. Correct. However, what type of time frame are we talking about for the, the hold period here? Again, in our full presentation that Marcella does, she will say, on average, we tell people to expect to wait seven to 10 years. Okay. So that's kind of the sweet spot. Have people exited sooner? Absolutely. Have some taken longer? I know one guy, he bought a property for $400,000. He's had it over 10 years. His last offer was 10 million and he turned it down. This is actually the husband of one of the other salespeople. We were in Tahiti. Company goes on an annual trip for top producers every year. So my wife and I are in Tahiti. We're talking to this guy over a drink and and I just, I shook my head. I won't use his real name. I'll just call him Fred. I said, Fred, 400,000 to 10 million. You've had it 10 years and you're still not selling. I said, what are you waiting for? He goes, 15 million. I said, is it really going to go? He said, yeah, I, I know what it's worth. He's been doing this for a while. And my wife's been doing it. You know, She's a salesperson, a, a licensed realtor. So we know what it's worth. We don't need the money right now. So we're just going to wait. So seven to 10 is reasonable. I had one of my clients call me a year in, and he had been told all this. And a year in, he calls me up, a year and a half. He goes, Brad, what's happening with my land? I heard about some solar projects going on and it's right close by. And I said, uh, Rick, 
do you get on the free web? We, we do free webinars on Tuesdays. To the COO comes on for 30 minutes and updates everybody on what's happening. I said, are you getting on the free webinars on Tuesday to stay informed? He says, no. I said, well, you need to. I said, oh, oh by the way, as far as your land, you know, it rained last night and it's wet land today. But by tonight, it'll be dry again. And that's all I'm going to tell you about your land. Because what did I tell you? Seven to 10 years. You're bugging, you're bugging me after a year. I said, get on the webinars, stay informed, take notes, watch as the COO tells about other solar projects coming. He said, okay, fine. So he doesn't bother me. Like another year later, he sends me a photo of him and his wife at their land with a picture across the street of a just built solar farm. Uh, that's what we call these big, you know, square miles of solar panels. And he takes a picture and he says, Brad, it's coming. My land is, it's, I'm, not, I'm across the street now. And I said, good, just be patient. Don't bother me again for a couple more years until you're in that seven to 10 zone. And then we can talk a little more. So who knows? He could get an offer tomorrow. It could be another year, but it's coming. And, and again, we can't say guaranteed, but based on the development of solar. Solar is going crazy where we are right now. It, just because of state laws, there's a whole bunch of factors that make the land that we're purchasing, we know it's in the path of growth. So you're talking about, what's that, an IRR of somewhere around 30% annualized then? COO actually says, if you don't get at least 25%, then you don't exit. You just wait until yeah. it's at least 20 So your, your hit on 30% is very accurate. Wow. That is mad. Okay, so all right. So here's my follow-up question to this. And I and I'm sure a lot of you of my listeners are asking the exact same question right now. What are the costs for holding the land? Are you gonna end up going broke in taxes or anything like this to I, I assume there's no maintenance or upkeep or anything like that, but I mean there's got to be something that you're gonna need to pay to the state or to the government, to the municipality that could really affect things. How does that work? Great, I'll answer that and be sure to ask me about how to buy it. Because if you buy it inside of an IRA or a 401k or for Canadians, I think it's an RRSP. In other countries, in, in, in England, it's an RSP. It's all different ways. That, that's some of the most tax effective way to buy land is inside of a retirement vehicle, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So you have the cost of the land included in the price is Title insurance. We actually, our company actually covers title insurance included. So the price you're paying, that's it. There are closing costs on a very small solar property. I just sold one a week ago. It was $26,000 for two and a half acres. And she paid, I believe it was $1,000 closing costs. So that's, so 26,000 plus another thousand, that's to get in. Because of Proposition 13 in the state of California, which was passed in the late 70s, when land transfers, the maximum transfer, you know, the maximum amount that they can charge is 1.3%. And we have found it's actually less than that. So, but even at 1.3% on 26,000, you're talking $260 a year. And that's max. And it won't even be that. It'll probably be for her property more like 150, 125 to 150. So you've got that and it can only go up. 2% a year. So she pays 150 the first year, 2% is another 30 but another $3 I think or something. Uh, yes, like another yeah, 3. So 2 2% of the actual 2 amount, not 2% of, of the purchase price or the 
two percent like of the tax. Yeah, it can only go up two percent of it. So whatever she paid one year, it's only two percent more the next year. So but you can actually spreadsheet and budget and know into the future what your expenses are going to be. This is once again yeah. purposeful, not guessing. Map it out ten years. The other thing that we told my, the other thing I told my clients, and she is doing it inside of a Roth IRA, which is even better. Those that know what a Roth is, that grows tax free. So any gain that she gets is Uncle Sam gets nothing else. But the IRA is actually the owner of the land. It's titled to the IRA company. And so her IRA pays, she directs the IRA to pay the LA County tax assessor every November, whatever her fee is. So she put in enough for the 26,000, the extra thousand for closing costs and enough for about 10 years. So 150 times, about another 1500 extra. So she's got that one and it's all done and it's all in the Roth. And every year she'll get the notice. She tells her IRA company, she's using a company called Equity Trust. We only use three companies because they have to understand how to title land so that when the developer wants to buy it, you take it out of title. It's not a headache. And there's only three companies that do it right. So she's with Equity Trust Company. And that's where all of mine and my wife's are, by the way. So not, not a plug for equity, but it's just the one that we like. They actually have a dedicated person on staff just for our clients. That's how much business we do with them. So she has all that money aside. And so she's got nothing to do until this is uh, June, November, she'll get her tax bill. She'll tell equity, send these guys a check and she's done for a year. Doesn't have to do another thing. So very, very easy to get in, uh, not a 25,000 minimum to get in and a very low closing costs and very low holding costs over the length of time. Okay, so 25,000, that's the minimum size that you'll start working with an investor. What was the top end? And I suppose kind of what is the average that you see people like to uh, purchase? 25 to 2 million is our range. Yeah. Over 2 million, I would probably send them to the CEO and they would have a private conversation. I would not be part of that because there might be a parcel that they could find for somebody with that much. There's a lot to land banking. And even after three years, I'm still learning a lot and still getting clients. Generally, I would say average is about 80 to 100. If we take all of the properties between Marcella and myself, put them all together, I would say the average is about between 80 and 100,000. And then what size of property are someone normally going to pick up for that type of thing? I'm just trying to get my head around it, you know, because I do investing mostly international, which we're going to touch on in a little bit. But I just want to understand, you know, kind of the size and the range and things like that, what we're talking about here. Well, to back up for a second, first thing, and one of the things I learned is that there's different kinds of land. To me, to me, to me, it's just dirt. But and to most people, when you look at it, it's just dirt. Uh, but there's actually five kinds. So at the very bottom, you have what's called non-residential agricultural, then residential, then industrial, commercial, and mixed use. So and again, it goes the cheapest to the most expensive. So does this have to do with zoning laws or how are these types of things? Absolutely. In fact, let's say you buy a commercial property and the city government, and this has happened to some of our investors, the city decides, well, that commercial area, we want to make it a mixed use area so we can build other things. Well, you just got like almost a hundred percent increase in the value of your property because 
now you can build four to five stories high, whereas commercial, I think it's only two. So you just added like three times to the value of your land. But does it ever go the opposite direction? Does the the state ever say, okay, it's for commercial use, but we want to downgrade it for something else? Great question. I have never seen that happen. Can it? I, I guess it could, but you it's a hierarchy and it it just the flow of building in a particular city, as far as I could tell, would never make it go in the reverse direction. So every time we hear of a, of a zoning law change from the city council, moving it up a notch, our investors are doing the happy dance. They're just dancing around, ka-ching. Well, that just means more money on, on exit. So 25,000, you can get a solar property, like this client that I just, 26,000, she got two and a half acres, literally surrounded on three sides by existing or proposed solar farms. And you can actually see these from outer, we go to Google and we take a lot of Google Earth shots. And Google, by the way, we found out is anywhere from two to three years behind. So it doesn't even have all the current solar projects that have gone in. We, we know in the last two and a half years, there's been over 50 square miles of land that have disappeared just for solar. 50 square, that's seven by seven square mile block of land has just disappeared to these solar farms. So yeah, land is going incredibly fast right now because of state law in California and, and, and other indicators. Uh, so 25,000 gets you in, you dip your toe in the water, you try that out. Uh, as you move up, residential is probably 60 to 80,000 to get an acre, acre and a quarter. And then they can build two houses, or they may decide to build four houses, or they may decide to go eight houses. And again, when the city council does that, we love it. Uh, as you start getting into industrial, commercial, probably 125 to 250, somewhere in that area, and mixed use, we can't even get mixed use anymore. It's it's literally- it's too rare it, or just already scooped up? It's been scooped, most of it's been scooped up, or you're talking a half a million for maybe two acres. So that is for just a very few of our clients that, that can afford that. Uh, my first property was actually mixed use. Uh, my wife was able to get one about a year and a half ago. And those are the only two in eight years that I've seen Marcella sell uh, or, or me sell. Uh, so in you know eight, nine years, two properties that were mixed use, n- no others. Now other agents might've might have sold it, but I don't know about them. So, okay, so what I'm hearing is you would be looking for a, a piece of property in a specific area which you expect to have growth. Now, I, I want to get into the details of what that looks like in a moment, but I just want to kind of recap for a second to make sure that I understand. We have five classifications of land. You're going to pick one that's going to work within your budget and your time frame and everything like this. Someone would want to be holding these for roughly seven to 10 years. And if possible, do them in some type of a registered account, like a Roth IRA. And this will actually allow it to grow tax deferred throughout the lifetime of the investment. Roth Roth would be tax-free. A regular IRA would be tax deferred. Okay, perfect. But but they're great. Either one is great. (laughs) But yeah, if I'm not mistaken with these types of retirement accounts, there is a maximum contribution that you can do every year. So someone could theoretically not have room with the retirement accounts so that they would do it in a non-retirement account. Is that right? Okay. Well, two different questions. Let's deal with the retirement account and then the non-retirement account. With a retirement account, you're right. 
a regular person like my wife who is working for Oracle, she's allowed to contribute X amount, X percent, and there's a company match. But that goes in, she buys stocks and mutual funds and it grows. So over the course of her career at Oracle, her account went up into the several hundreds of thousands of dollars. She can use all of that money to buy land. We, we didn't, <laughs> we, you know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. She had a dormant account from a former employer. She was with them for about 18 or 19 years. And that also had several hundred thousand dollars. And that's the one that we use. So you've got to have enough in the account to have at least the 25,000. This client that just bought last week, it's a year and a half since her last purchase. And it took her a year and a half to get enough money to have the 30 grand to buy this property. And then she told me, I'm going to do one a year. And I'm like, okay, let's not rush. Let me know. So she's trying to maximize that account. So that's one way you, you put in, you know, 4%, 5%, 6% company match. It grows over time, but there are other ways to set up retirement accounts, solo 401ks. There's other options where you're allowed to contribute up to 25% of your salary. So if you're making 100,000, you could put 25 grand a year in. So you could be buying one property a year, just contribute. So there's all kinds of, this is not financial advice. So talk to your CPA, make sure you've checked it all out, but there are ways to build your retirement accounts faster than just the traditional, you know, 7,000 a year that I'm allowed to as a 70 as year old person, it's called the catch up. A normal person can put in 6,500, I can put in 7,000. Well, that would take me, you know, four years to get enough money. So there's a lot of different ways you can use your retirement accounts. So that's one issue. Oh, I was just, I was just curious if people only do these strategies within retirement accounts, or if they do these also just as straight investments, and then there's really no cap on how much that they can put in. Yes. There's actually one slide in Marcella's presentation, I think has 12 different ways you can invest. You can use cash. You can borrow uh, a HELOC. We do not like that. We don't want people having carrying costs. You can use uh, life insurance with living benefits. You can borrow from the life insurance policy and then return the money back after it sells. 1031 exchange. Many of your, again, that's a specific US kind of thing that your clients, your uh, listeners may, may know of. It's a part of the tax code to defer the tax. So some people, they, they sell an apartment building, they have a lot of return, they don't wanna pay Uncle Sam right now. And so they buy a bigger apartment building and they have what's called the boot, which is kind of the leftover between what you have to put in, because you gotta put 100% uh, and what the new project was. So maybe they have 100,000 left over and they go, eh, I'm gonna have to bite the bullet and pay the 20% capital gains. And we go, no, 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 buy land with that 100,000 and you can defer that. Uh, and they go, okay, great. So we get, we get you know, 10 to 15% of our people do 1031 exchanges. So lots of different ways that you can uh, buy the land. We just like retirement accounts because it's either tax deferred or tax free, depending on which vehicle you've chosen. Well, I think all of my listeners know very well that we always try to do things in the most tax efficient <laughs> manner, absolutely possible. So they, they know my, my feeling on taxation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I share that, I share that feeling very strongly. <laughs> Good to hear. We will just take a quick break. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com 
to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or eBooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. So I think you just quickly mentioned about leverage. Just maybe break this down for a little bit, because I'm sure that questions will come up. You know, can they borrow money? Can they go to a bank? Can they get a mortgage? What's your opinion? And just kind of flush this out a little bit more. I'll give you an actual example. There was a $599,000 property available. It was solar. It was just flat, empty agricultural land. I don't remember the acreage, but it was several hundred acres. So it was an incredible deal, but only available to a very small group of investors. $600,000 is a lot. I tried to get my wife to buy 25% of it. And she said, we have 11. That's enough. I said, okay, fine. So the lady that actually wound up buying it, and I can't share her name or anything, but I can tell the story. I found out from Marcella, she refied her house, took out every penny that she got. And we don't recommend this. If we had known she was doing it, we probably would have advised her not to do it. But her background is Vietnamese. She understands land and, and, and generational wealth. And she had a house with a lot of equity. So she refied, pulled out all of her equity, threw a little bit more in there, bought it with cash, for $599,000. Six months later, she got an offer for $1.2 million and laughed, hung up the phone and turned it down. They came back to her with a lease because you can do these solar farms. They, they Sometimes they don't want to put up the upfront money. They want to lease it and spread their payments out over 25 years. Those always have a 2% escalation clause. So you negotiate. And we, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this. We actually, our COO gets involved with every client and offers free negotiation coaching to help you maximize your return. We don't just leave you hanging out there. We know, for instance, if another one of our clients has just sold, then we have a comp and we know what the land is worth and, and they're offering you only half. We know the property next door to yours sold for twice. So, so we will offer that free coaching. So she goes ahead and turns, then she gets a call back from them and they said, well, what about a lease, a 25 year lease, which would have turned into several million dollars. And she laughed at him again and turned that one down. So we're just waiting to see what this lady, and she had, didn't even call us. She went out and we don't advise it. We say, do not even respond to the developer. Get as much information in an email so it's written, send it to me. I send it to the COO, he and I talk. He gives me some questions to give to you, the investor, and then you go back to the developer with those questions. Now, all of a sudden, the developer goes, 
uh-oh, they understand land. We're not going to be able to rob this person. So now they bump their rot. They usually double what they offered, and it's still not enough. And then this process goes from developer to my investor, to me, to the COO, to me, to my investor, to developer. And this could go on for a year. Yeah. But the price is continually going up as we continue to help the person get to the point. Oh, and we're never allowed to give financial advice. So if you said to me, Brad, I bought land for 25000 They just offered me 150 That's six-fold return. Um, should I sell? If I say either yes or no to you, I've just given you financial advice and I'd lose my real estate license. So I'll use the code. I'll say, Mikhail, that's a very good price. That's fair market value. Yeah, but should I sell? That's a very good price. I'll just do the broken record technique and just keep repeating it until you finally go, oh, 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 I get it. You're giving me the code. And then now you can go for another five or 10,000 if you want. It's your land. You can do whatever the hell you want. Or heck, sorry. You can do whatever the heck you want. But you've now gotten the code word from us that, yeah, you're, you're at market value. You're getting six-fold return. Don't be greedy. Sell it. Then it's up to you to negotiate. We actually will look at your contract and go over it with you and cross out lines that our attorneys say should not be in there. And we'll, we'll help you. But that's, and it's all free. People say, well, why, why would your COO who gets 4,000 an hour for consulting fees, why would, or two, two to 4,000 an hour, why would he do this for free? Well, A, we want you to be happy and make a lot of money because we're hoping you'll reinvest some of that with us. We're not stupid. Okay. So that's, that's that. But B, we, our company is getting legal insider information about that project that is not available to anybody else. And as soon as we find out about that project, we put our research and acquisition team on high alert and we say, go look around that area. What other projects might be coming in where we can buy the land now really, really cheap, give it to our investors at a good price, and then let them ride it for the, you know, the, the three to seven X return. So we're getting free legal insider information from our investors that we normally, because if we call them and said, hi, we're the XYZ company. No, we don't talk to you guys. <laughs> Hang up the phone on us. Okay, so that makes sense. That makes sense. So, okay, so let's get into some of the some of the tenements then about what it is you would be looking for when choosing a property. Yeah, and let's try to make things as global as possible, so people understand that they can take these same type of concepts and use them in anywhere in the world where they are today, and they're listening to this episode. All right, and and forgive me, I don't have all ten memorized. We we call them the ten growth factors. So first and foremost, the land has to be in an area where you're expecting there to be growth. All right, well, how do you determine if there's growth? So we have the 10 growth factors. Some of them are very simple. It's got to be flat land. You don't buy land on a hillside. You don't buy land, you know, that's that's got culverts in it, you know, that where runoff water goes. It's got to be flat, developable land, and it's got to be affordable. Can't already be maxed out on the price. Adequate water supply. You're not going to have growth in an area where there's a desert, where there's lack of water. You have to have infrastructure. Okay, so let's pause for a second. So let's go into a little bit of detail on each one of these. So when you say water, do you mean like the you actually go out there and see what the reservoirs are underneath? Or are you looking at rainfall? Or are you looking at well water access or municipal water? Flush this out a little bit more for me. 
we just fleshed it out. That's kind of funny. Yeah, that was a bad pun. Sorry. Yes. All, <laughs> yes. All of the above. Okay. There has to be available clean water that you know can meet the another one of the trends is population growth. So see, people tell me, why don't you go to Arizona? The land's flat. It's cheap. There's a lot of sun. There's not a lot of infrastructure. There's not a lot of population, and they've got a water problem. By the way, California has a water problem too, but we're working on that and, and, and it will be resolved. So you just, and rainfall, you know, aquifers, you know, if you've got a lot of toxic runoff, then the water supply is killing the people in town. That's not a growth area. You know, we have that, there's a spot in California actually uh, where they had arsenic in the water. Well, we're not going to land bank in that area because they're not going to have a lot of people moving there and, and, and infrastructure. So as an example, when the city government, the two cities that are in the area where we invest called the Antelope Valley, but when the two city governments put $180 million into widening the off-ramps from the freeway that runs through the town, you got to ask yourself, why would they do that? So you want to watch, oh, and a business-friendly city government. So there are cities in California which are anti-housing, anti-growth, you know, whatever you want to call them. We don't go there. They're not conducive to land banking. But where we are, there's a mayor who is very forward thinking. He's inviting businesses to come in there. He's offering tax incentives. So, and again, this is international. Anywhere, any country that you're in, you can do this, we call it risk mitigation, by looking at these 10 growth factors and figuring out, are they present? And, and in our area, all 10 are present. Whether you have all 10 or not may not be, uh, you know, maybe you got eight or seven. That's good, too. But if there's only one or two, like, oh, there's flat land and it's cheap. Okay, but it doesn't have water. It doesn't have population growth. It doesn't have infrastructure. It doesn't have a manufacturing base. It doesn't have job growth. Oh, and green. We like green energy. Uh, that, that is a major factor. If they're building lots of solar farms, they're probably going to build more. So Arizona and Nevada, are, they're starting to do some there, but they're having problems. They don't have the workers because there's not towns near, big, you know, big enough nearby where they're building them. So, and, oh, as far as infrastructure, if you're building solar farms, you better have a way to get that electricity from those panels into the grid. Well, guess what? In, in our area, they spent $3 billion upgrading the high-tension power lines 10 years ago. Well, why, you got to ask yourself questions. Why would an energy company, Southern California, Southern California Edison, why would they spend $3 billion upgrading high-tension power lines in the middle of the Antelope Valley? Something must be going on down there that I don't know. And so our research and acquisition department starts researching. Well, what's going on? Why are they building these substations? And they knew that this area was going to explode. And we... Our CEO, I say we, it's basically our CEO who's an economist. He looked at the trends and he said, hmm, I think something's going on in the Antelope Valley. We need to look a little closer. You got you to gotta look to see where, follow the money. Where are they spending? The first thing when you said infrastructure, the first thing I'm thinking about is roads or water treatment or these types of things. Actually, the first thing was not, you know, the power lines and make sure that they'd be able to handle the load from solar farms. I mean, that just did not occur to me. Right. But all the, all the things you mentioned, you want to look at. And we watched, they're widening. There's a two-lane highway, Highway 138, that runs through the 
entire valley where we're investing. They have already approved the money to make it into a six-lane highway. We have investors that are buying land right along that road because you know they're going to put malls and shopping centers and housing developments. So when people exit off the freeway, they two minutes, they're at home. Or two minutes, they're at Starbucks or Walmart or Home Depot. My wife actually owns one right on, it's called Avenue D. It's, it's Highway 138. It's Avenue D. She literally is fronting on that. And they're going to make it a six-lane freeway? Hello? So, yeah, we definitely look at the roads and the interchanges and, and uh, stop signs and traffic lights. You want to follow traffic lights? That, that's a good one. But yeah, there's other kinds of infrastructure, as you mentioned, water treatment facilities, high tension power lines, substations, uh, battery energy storage systems, because you're making all this electricity when the sun's up. What happens when the sun goes down? If you're all on solar, you're in, you're in a lot of trouble, <laughs> unless you've stored all that energy that you got during the sun shining, and now you can use that energy at nighttime when there's no more sun to power everybody who's just come home from work. They want to, you know, watch TV and they want to power up their Tesla or whatever car they, you know, electric car. And that's another trend. Uh, electric vehicles are exploding. And, and, and so the electrification of everything is causing the greatest land rush in the history of California. Well, if you're in a foreign country, look around. Where are they putting in charging stations? Where are they, you know, making it easier for people to, to, to buy electric vehicles, look at all the countries that, in fact, we follow a lot of international news. It's happening everywhere. Paris is going to prohibit uh, internal—they're called ICE cars, internal combustion engine cars. They're going to prohibit those cars from driving in the city environs uh, starting. I, I want to say 2035. It may even be 2025. You will not be able to, to drive an internal combustion engine in the. A city of Paris, France. Paris, yeah. Yeah, hello. Wow. It's happening everywhere. This is all over the world. So be alert. Be alert. Very interesting. See, and when you're you're listing some of these tenements, and and, uh, I'm going to use that word for, for lack of a better one, I'm thinking about some of my friends who own large areas of land in Latin America. I mean, I have a a good friend of mine who has something like 2,000 acres in Nicaragua. And he was bragging me to the one day that he owns his own volcano. He literally owns a volcano. But at the same time, you're also saying you want to buy really, really, really flat land. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know what really what you're going to do with a volcano. How are you going to <laughs> develop? I don't know either. I mean, uh, maybe open a tourist destination for people to watch it if it ever explodes again. But well, who would want to buy that land? I, I just want, you know, unless volcanic land, you know, unless they discover some mineral in it and he's got the mineral rights. Okay, great. You, you, but to me, that is speculation. That is not land banking. Now, if he owned 2000 acres of flat land near a major city in Nicaragua and all of the development in that city was heading west and he was in the west, I'd say great move. That's land banking. You're bringing up something called, uh, one of the things we look at are sensitive environmental areas, SEAs. So if it's got a red-legged toad or some kind of flower on it, you can't develop that land. Well, we know the east side of the cities that we are investing in to the east 
covered with SEAs. They're all over the place. You can just find them on a map. But if you're not an experienced land banker, somebody offers you land and it's really cheap and it's flat, you go, oh yeah, it's on the east side of Lancaster and Palmdale. Ooh, ooh, rub my hands, I'll buy it. And then you find out there's a red-legged toad. You can't do diddly squat with that land because that red-legged toad has more rights than you as a human being does. <laughs> and, and so you're SOL with, with that particular piece of land. So we look at that. We look at the environmental laws. I mean, there's just, I, that, I probably covered all 10 trends, but oh, marijuana. <laughs> Nobody knew that uh, uh, the Proposition 64 was going to pass in two years, uh, three years ago, 2018. But that has created a tremendous market for land because these growers are building what are called grow facilities. And they're huge. They're gigantic. They're tens of acres with guard dogs and AK-47 guys walking around the outside, but they're totally automated, no employees. If I had land, I would definitely want to sell to those guys. I think yeah. that would be no, awesome. Sure. That would just be a fun story. <laughs> well, it would be a fun story because what you want to do is make sure when you negotiate that you get free samples for life. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> as, part, as part of the contract. Just a little, just, just a little bit. But it's a little that's, the, that's the libertarianism. Yeah, yeah. You, me, you know, let people uh, let people do what they want with their bodies. Right. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Okay. So the so these are these are good things to to think about, and I think that literally everything that you just said is applicable worldwide. I mean, the green energy has not caught on anywhere in the world like it has in California. California is certainly the leader in a lot of these things. But I would say I would say the nine other things right now today are all things that you would have to keep in mind if this was something that you wanted to do, if you wanted to be purposeful and buy land. Now, you've traveled quite extensively, Brad. Uh, I mean, we were talking, you've been to what, something like 30 countries, 29 countries, something like this. I lost count. Not as many, not as many as you, though. I know you've gone way more. <laughs> I'm I'm crazy, though. Don't don't no one should compare their travel to me and and you know, their list of countries or uh, how much they've traveled to, to what I've done. I'm crazy in this way. But okay, in your trips, in your vacations or holidays, like I know you're headed to Mexico this week, do you ever look at foreign real estate and kind of run these checklists through your head and try to think, you know, what would it be like to do something like land banking in one of these other countries? That's a great question. Uh, and tomorrow I'll be in Cancun having dinner, and I may just ask some of the local people there about vacant land, uh, but I've never really done that. Uh, part of the reason is I never really thought about it that much, but also once I learned about land banking and I'm still learning and finding out how diligent you must be prior to buying it, and that's what this company is so good at. That's why I left my 40-year career as a business coach and transitioned over to this because this company that I'm working for is just outstanding in the due diligence. We call it risk mitigation, due diligence. But I haven't thought about applying that. Part of the problem would be doing the research. I'll give you a quick example. Maps. There are maps that show things like easements, you know, which allows the person that has the easement to gain access to the property, to build a road, or in the, in the, the example of a, an energy company, they can build a, a power line. 
So we had a client that bought some land from us, went on to Google, found this property, same exact size for a third of the price. Instead of 150,000, it was only 50,000. And it was literally contiguous, touching the parcel they had just bought from us. They wanted their money back. We said, hold on a minute. We pulled out one of the maps that we have that, by the way, the city and county of LA don't have. These are private maps that we've gotten over the years. So if you can get them, that's great, but it's very hard to do. We overlaid that map onto the plat map showing the property, and it had a little dotted line running through the middle of the property that was only 50000 And the person said, wait a minute, what's that dotted line? It's not on my map. And we said, yeah, dummy, that's, that's a, a utility easement that allows the utility company to go through the middle of your property and put a power line and a, and a dirt road, which means that $50,000 property is completely undevelopable. So yeah, you want your money back? Fine, go buy that one for 50,000 and you're out 50,000. And he said, no, no, I'm sorry. I apologize profusely. I'll never bother you again. I'm so happy with my money. He hung up the phone. That was the end of that conversation. So that kind of information, I'm down in Cancun. I don't think, even if I went to a real estate office and talked to a realtor, I don't think they have access to that level of information that they could with confidence sell me a piece of empty land and say, oh yeah, we know that they're going to build something. Uh, I would just be a little skeptical. However, for your expats who are living in the country, they may have that, that kind of resource. Go team up with a, with a good surveyor and a good economist and a, go get chummy with the city council uh, and especially the city planning department. Go get chummy with the city planning department and become their friend. Go give them a bottle of wine, take them out for dinner, whatever, and get access to some of that inside legal insider information about where the city sees the growth going. That you could do. Any, anybody in any country could do that. I just, I'm used to doing it here. We have 11. We're not buying anymore. We're only going to replace. So our, our philosophy is when we sell a piece of land, we go on a really great vacation, put a bunch into retirement and buy a replacement property, which that one would most likely be for our daughter, because by then we're gonna be getting into our 80s and 90s. So that's what we mean by legacy wealth. This is not just for my wife and I, this is for our daughter. And hopefully if she has kids one day, our grandkids will get written into the, to the will as well. But your expats in other countries, yeah, do your research. Be very, very, very careful, because you could land speculation, is, is literally speculating and hoping and praying and wishing. We know that growth is coming where in, in the area that we're in. You wanna be, you wanna have that level of certainty, if that's a word, certainty, <laughs> certainty, certainty, that level of certainty before you plunk down your hard earned money uh, to, to do it. But land banking can be extremely lucrative when done properly. That makes sense because so when my wife and I travel, and, and obviously, you know, we travel quite a bit as a couple, we love to look at real estate. I mean, we go and find a local broker or a buyer's agent or a real estate agent, and we go out there and shop for places. And you can learn so much from just going and working with the, the local representation. Yep. yep. I'm just trying to piece into my mind how I would do something like this for land banking. Like, and, and you really did a great job of, of highlighting some of the key things and people that you would need to know and relationships that you would need to know if you wanted to do this in another region around the world. 
So those are really good insights for us on, on kind of the team that it would take and how assembling a team like that is so valuable and what working with a professional company like your company is so valuable opposed to just going out there and buying the first plot of land that you happen to see that's a couple of acres. And and I know so many people around the world who have done this because the, the old Look adage of... Yeah. You're looking at, I, I, I have bought land that way before and lost my shirt twice. So I was very reluctant. And, and, you know, like you said, the team, we have a research and acquisition department. I think it's eight to 10 people full time. And all they do is the kind of research that I've been talking about. They look at the maps, they look at the sensitive environmental areas. So yeah, your team is going to be extremely important and get them on your side. So, you know, one of the things I would do, I'm down in Cancun, I would ask the, the, hotel, the, the concierge or the bellhop or those guys, who's the best real estate agent in this entire circle of Cancun? It's the hotel zone. And I would go to that person and say, is there any vacant land in this whole hotel section that's still reasonably priced, but that is zoned for a hotel or a, a restaurant? And, and then I would look at, you know, and I'd start to narrow it down that way. Uh, and then look to see why they think buying that piece of land is going to give you the kind of returns that you want. But again, you got to be land is a buyer beware arena. In the U.S., it's not regulated like residential. So if I knew, Miguel, if I knew, I literally knew that there was a buried gas tank under the land because it was a gas station 50 years ago. I do not legally have to tell you that in California. I don't know the other states, but I do not legally have to tell you that when I'm selling you that piece of land in California. The disclosure for land, which is commercial uh, on the commercial side versus residential, very different set of laws than doing residential. If you have a, a former meth lab, if somebody died, if the neighbors are noisy, it all has to be just it all has to be disclosed. The, the dog that bites. All of that has to be disclosed or the real estate agent will get sued. Absolutely. We're a very litigious society. You got to understand the laws. You got to understand the trends, the mega trends, uh, and get your team in place. But um, so you've got me interested enough when I'm down there. I, I may actually take a, a couple hours and just poke around and see if I could do land banking. Well, if you're going to Cancun, I would suggest going to Merida and Tulum in those areas, because from a lot of my research and a lot of my friends who do investing, they see that that is really going to be the next chain of progress, I think, on the Yucatan Peninsula. I agree with you. Tulum has exploded. We were down there the last time we were, we usually go every year, but we couldn't go last year. So the last time we went uh, in 2019, uh, we, we went to see the ruins and they had kiosks and stores and uh, a shuttle service and a whole new entryway that was a permanent building versus the little guy standing there that just took your ticket and let you in. Uh, so yeah, Tulum might be a, an excellent area to look at in, in terms of development. But again, get a local real estate agent who knows the land, speaks fluent Spanish, you know, can look at all that and see where are they going to build the next thing. That whole Riviera, you know, Mayan Riviera area could be a potentially good area to do land banking in. Amazing. Yeah, there's so many countries in Latin America that I'm traveling to these days because they're some of the only countries that are actually open during the days of COVID. 
like we're in Brazil at the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm often thinking, you know, what would it like be like to buy real estate here or to buy land here? And how would that work? And how would I go about it? We've, we've gone out and viewed many properties here in Brazil on this trip and trying to understand that. So this is a, a timely episode for me as well, as I make further investments uh, in our portfolio. There's risk in any investment of any kind, not just land, but you buy a single family residence hoping to uh, flip it, you know, fix it up and flip. Uh, look at the price of lumber right now. Nobody could have anticipated in a year that it's like doubled or tripled and it's added 30, 40, $50,000 to the cost of a fix up. So somebody that got into a fix and flip a year ago and had a budget and it was all mapped out and did the math. And now they had to add 50,000 more just for the lumber, forget about the piping and everything else. Um, there, there's risk in everything. That's why we have a range that's 25,000. It's, it's, affordable enough that people can take that kind of risk. We, By the way, we've never, ever in 41 years of this company being around, no one has ever lost money. Now, some people are still waiting to exit, so they haven't made money, but nobody, we can safely say no one has ever gotten out by selling their land for less than what they purchased it for. So it well, can that makes sense because if you're not promoting like excessive leverage and you're promoting people do in a res responsible way and not, you know, take out a second mortgage or all the equity out of their home, no, please, not no. gambling. Right. And there's no huge holding costs or taxes, which are going to eat you alive. The bank's not going to be coming for the quote unquote keys right. for any of this stuff. So yeah, it's just the length of time that you will end up holding it, but that's still pretty incredible. Be able to a statement to be able to say that in 41 years, no one has lost money with these investments. And, and I think our COO coined the phrase or used the phrase, uh, there's no terminal obsolescence. Land, it, you can't destroy land. It's just, you know, a house can burn down, an apartment building can burn down, an earthquake can knock it down, but land is land. It's just dirt. The worst thing that happens to it is it gets rained on and then it's wet dirt. Uh, but then it dries out and it's back to the way that it was before. So that's one reason why I like this. It's We call it set it and forget it investing. Once a year, I pay my property tax. And otherwise, I do not bother other than Tuesday nights getting the updates. I don't bother. I haven't even seen eight of the 11 properties that we own. I've set foot on my three. I went down over the years. I picked up a little scoop of dirt and in a bag and labeled it and brought it home. So I know where my three properties are, but my wife's eight property, well, one of them is right on a paved highway. So we, we've been to that one. So seven of our properties, we haven't even seen. And I don't care. All I care about is, is there growth happening around it? And is it causing the value of my land to go up? And, and the answer is yes. And so I'm very happy. And now it's just be patient. Just be patient. So Brad, talk to me a little bit about investors. Do you only take investors who live in Southern California or do you take people from all over the United States or do you take people from all over the world? How does that work? Great question. The simple answer is as long as the laws in whatever country they live in allow them to invest in real estate in the United States, they can buy land from us in Southern California. They don't have to be Californians. They don't even have to be Southern Californians. Uh, in fact, uh, some of our biggest investors are Chinese. 
uh, several years ago. A lot of them wanted to get cash out of China and invested. In fact, we had a whole wave of them back in uh, 07, 08, 09. A lot of Chinese were buying up uh, single family residences and now renting them out. In fact, somebody even said probably more land is owned by non-US people than US people. Um, so as long as you know Canadians, uh, Philippines, we have several investors, Mexico, uh, as long as the laws in your country, wherever you happen to be, allow you to invest in the United States in real estate, we're totally fine with that. I love it, Brad. Amazing, super interesting conversation. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? The best and easiest way, since they're all over the globe, is email. And it's just my name, brad at bradwarren.com. My old website is my coaching website, so you'll learn about my coaching from that. But the best thing is just email me and we'll schedule a Zoom. We'll get to know one another first before we even invite you to watch the full presentation that my business partner, Marcella, does. I have to screen you because we, we, we basically, Mikhail, we, we want the person to have three things going for them. They have to be nice. They have to be patient and they have to have at least 25,000. So I, first, I screen for those three things first. If they're not nice, I'll very casually say, you know, I, I'm not quite sure that this is the right investment for you. And I'll hang up the phone and goodbye because <laughs> yeah. they're the client. This is for, not a really good fit. They're the client for I hell and you don't one. want to deal with them. So yeah, Brad, Brad at bradwarren.com. Get a hold of me and happy to set up a Zoom call and continue the conversation with your, your uh, viewers. Perfect. And if you guys do decide that this is something that you want to do, feel free to let Brad know that you first heard him on the Expat Money Show or that you are a subscriber of mine, of Mikel's. And uh, Brad, you take really good care of my people, okay? You promised me. Yeah, actually, the first question that I asked him is, how did you hear about land banking? Because I want to know, because you're a nice guy, and, and so I would trust the people that would come through you. So that is very good. I always ask that question. You should. My subscribers are the best. I can, I can legitimately say that. My subscribers are the coolest, best people ever. I've met so many of you guys. And you know we've got the Expat Money Forum at expatmoneyforum.com. So we're always chatting and getting to know each other better and tons of networking there. And seriously, Brad, my subscribers are the absolute best. Okay, well, okay. thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I will talk to you soon, okay? My pleasure. Thank you. Bye, everybody. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. 
From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.